I want to talk to you this morning about marriage. Uh, marriage is an institution that's come under quite a number of attacks over the last several years. We've seen the deterioration of our society's values to the point that people entering marriage know uh, or, or they enter marriage knowing that, hey, if it, we'll just get a divorce if it doesn't all work out. Now we're seeing the perversion of the institution of marriage with the legalization of homosexual marriages, and we see the devaluing of marriage. Why get married? What is, what is the point of committing in marriage? And uh, people are living together, and we're just deviating away from God's plan. But this morning, I want us to look at the ideal for marriage. What does Jesus have to say about sex, marriage, and divorce? A good launching point for this is Matthew 19, starting at verse 3. So if you want to turn to Matthew 19, verse 3. And we've been going through Genesis, and this is one of those foundational things in Genesis is marriage, the family, the home. And so we want to take a moment and talk about marriage. And in this, Jesus is going to reveal to us what he believes about Genesis. And it's very accurate because he was there. Right? He was a part of that creation. But in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees have come to Jesus, and their leaders have debated, how can I be righteous and get a divorce? Okay. What, what, are the, what are the reasons for being able to have a vowed divorce and still be considered righteous? Because that was a big concern for the Pharisees. And some of their, some of their teachers uh, went so far as to say, hey, look, if she burns the toast, you can divorce her. Right? And then others had a much stricter view of reasons for divorce. And so they're they're looking to come to Jesus, and, and, and really, they're looking to entrap Jesus. And his answer is going to be stunning for them. And uh, just, just to lay out for you, this, this week we're going to look at the ideal for marriage. And then uh, I'm going to be out of town at a conference with a couple men from the church next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, we have a guest speaker. So then the next Sunday after that, we'll look at the reality of divorce, okay? So we have the ideal for marriage, and then we're going to look at the reality of divorce. And um, if you read through beyond our text today, you'll even see that the disciples, when they get Jesus alone, is like, hey, look, if this is the case, why even get married? Right? Jesus' answer, answer is so stunning. And uh, Jesus, of course, answered them that, well, you can read his answer. Let me not get into next time's sermon. Let's look at what Jesus says to these Pharisees who are coming looking to trap Jesus, if you will, between a rock and a hard place. Matthew 19, 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, when they say when it's lawful, again, they're most concerned about being considered righteous so another way to put this question is, is it righteous to divorce for any reason? And Jesus begins his answer to the divorce question by first establishing the ideal for marriage. Look at chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. It says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning 
made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God planned marriage for one man and one woman. God planned marriage for one man and one woman. Jesus begins his instruction for the ideal for marriage by making an appeal to the scriptures. The Bible is an ancient principles for today. Jesus first quotes Genesis 1:17. Excuse me, 127. Says, "So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female created them." That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 4 of our text for today. I want us to note a few things that Jesus believes are foundational to an understanding of marriage. Number one, there is a creator. And that God created man from the beginning. You see, God did not use evolution to create man. It's almost like God knew that someday somebody was going to come along and say, well, man, God didn't really create man that way. He did it through evolutionary processes and that type of thing. Jesus says it was from the beginning. God created man in his own image. God created both male and female. There are definite distinctions and differences between the sexes. God made us that way. Our differences make us suited for one another. And then we see that God planned marriage for one man and one woman. This plainly teaches that marriage was designed from the beginning for one man and one woman. Not two men, not two women, not one man and two women, one man and one woman. God created them male and female. It, uh, your, your, your biological sex is not determined by your mind. It's determined by your design. And marriage is designed for one man and one woman. So God planned marriage for one man and one woman. Again, we see here the physical bond of marriage. At verse 5, it says, and, and God said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here we see the physical bond of marriage. The physical bond of marriage. I want us to take a moment and note a few more things that Jesus believed about the scriptures here. He believed the account in Genesis was literal. God literally created everything from nothing. That Adam and Eve were literal human beings created by God, not figurative representatives that became aware of their humanness after evolving. Again, he created them from the beginning. And he believed the scriptures were inspired by God. Because in verse 5, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. And in the Genesis account, we're not told who made this statement. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But Jesus here attributes this statement to God. It says, he who created them and said... So based upon a literal reading of the inspired scriptures, Jesus teaches us about the ideal for marriage. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here we see the leaving, cleaving, and weaving 
of marriage. Or if you will, how I've put it in, in your outline there, leaving new loyalties and new life. The process involved in marriage. First we see the leaving process. A new family unit is created when a man leaves his father and mother for marriage. There comes a time when mama's little boy steps up, grows up, and becomes a man. His reliance on his parents must stop and he must step out on his own and he makes his own family. And while we are to always honor our parents, we are not bound to obey them for life. Remember the, the passage in Ephesians, children obey your parents in the Lord? Well, there comes a point where that doesn't apply anymore. It's when a man steps out and becomes his own family unit. When they leave their home, they form their own family and they have to forge their own lives. Think about it. If your parents were unsaved and you became saved and, and uh, they told you, I, I want you to stay home from church and let your kids make their own decisions about God. Well, who should you obey? You should obey God rather than your parents. You're on your own. You are now responsible for your own family. You have to care and raise them. So you should honor your parents to the best of your ability, but obedience is not required once you leave the home. So we have a new family unit created. And then we see new loyalties formed. A husband must hold fast to his wife, we're told here. The Greek word means to be closely associated, to cling to, to attach, to join oneself to. And the Old Testament Hebrew word, same thing, cleaving, clinging, sticking to. I remember right after Kim and I got married, uh, I went to my uncle's wood shop and uh, he helped me to create a wooden table. We still use it in our home. And it was made with wood from our, our farm and that type of thing. And it's special uh, to me. Uh, but I remember one of the first processes that I had to go through was just taking boards and gluing them together with a large C-clamp to hold them while the glue dried. And my uncle told me, I, I, said, I said, is that going to hold? You know, because pretty much everything I'd glued together at some point in life had come apart, Right. And he said, David, when you glue wood together, it's more likely to break along the, the seams than it is where you've glued it. It becomes so, the bond is so strong between the wood and the glue. That's what we have here with the man and the woman being brought together. There are new loyalties formed in our lives. Men, our loyalties are reprioritized when we are married. Before marriage, our loyalties should be first to God and then to family and then to friends. But when we leave our parents and form our own family, then our new priorities change to, well, we have our, our loyalty to God, and then my loyalty to my wife and my family, and then my friends, right? And so, you know, we have, we have friends that want to come in and say, hey, man, you're my bro, I come before your wife. No, not anymore. You know, I'm a, you're a dear friend, but my new loyalty is to my wife. We see these loyalties in Ephesians 5, verse 25, in the Christ-centered marriage. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28 for husbands. 
And it's all related to how Christ, it's all related to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially, men. We're to love her sacrificially. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So men, our priority is to our wives as Christ's loyalty was to the church, sacrificially. Ladies, your loyalties are reprioritized as well. You take your husband's name and you become identified with him. You're no longer under your parents' authority, but under your husband's authority. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 24, talks to the ladies. says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Note the Christ-centeredness of this situation. Husbands are to be the leaders of their home, but they lead with a thorn crowned, a thorn, thorn, a crown of thorns. Not a king of, oh, you should obey me, but a sacrificial love. Ladies are to submit to their husbands as Christ, as they do to Christ, the church does to Christ. Die, men, you need to die to your own desires and serve your wife. And wives are to submit to their husband's authority as the church submits to Christ's rule over it. A new set of loyalties is formed when a couple leaves their parents and become loyal to one another. You're a new unit, a new family unit. Now, let me speak here this morning to those of you who are single. You're unmarried, yet you desire to be married. Perhaps when we first started this, you thought, boy, I'm going to check out. The pastor's not even going to talk about me today. No, I want you to give you some things to look for uh, in your spouse, in your potential spouse. And we have four things that you should look for. Your potential spouse should be, first off, a Christian. You can marry whom you want only in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.39. So your potential spouse must be a Christian. And then your potential spouse must be Christ-like. In other words, there are some people that just say they're a Christian, but they don't act like a Christian. So look for the fruits of the Spirit in their life from Galatians 5, 22, 23. Are they displaying the fruit of the Spirit? More than just saying it, are they living it? And then thirdly, your potential spouse should be committed to a local church in membership. If they're committed to their local church and membership, they serve in their church, and you will have a ministry in your new marriage. You'll be able to continue to serve the Lord together. And then the fourth item there is to have common doctrine. Now, what, does, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, like, you should look for someone who's a Baptist or a Baptistic in their beliefs. Now, that's not a requirement, right? There are other Christians. There are some Presbyterians out there. We disagree on a few things, but not on the gospel. There, uh, there are Presbyterian denominations that we would agree with on the gospel. And so I, I would say, like, 
The first three, those are essential for a cake. The fourth one is like icing, right? So common doctrine. If you have common beliefs in, in areas, they must believe the gospel, but in these other areas, you should have pretty good agreement on those so that you don't end up in conflict in your marriage. So single gentlemen, single ladies, that's what you look for in a potential spouse. And then thirdly, we see the weaving process. The two shall become one flesh. That's new life. When a husband and wife unite in marriage, they become one flesh. Now, we see this fulfilled in three ways. Number one, through physical intercourse, the bodies are shared. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the husband or the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So recognizing the sexual desires of a husband and wife, Paul instructs us here to be giving in our relationship sexually unless we agree to fast for prayer. But other than that, give to your spouse their conjugal rights. So we see them become one through physical intercourse. Secondly, we see them become one through procreation. We have little image bearers of ourselves. You know, people have already looked at Autumn Grace and said, oh, they look like John. She looks like John or she looks like Aaron or whatever that we compare them to. But our, our children are our little image bearers. And so we see them. They are literally one body containing parts of each parent. That's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, the whole birthing pro- process is just amazing. You know, as, as Aaron was pregnant and, and uh, we, she, she would, of course, be tired for different things. And John would say something. I'd say, son, she's, she's literally creating a human being right now in her womb. She's going to be tired, right? Let her have some rest, you know. But we see that through procreation, through life. But then through life experience, we become one. I remember hearing a man talking one time about the different stages of his, of his life, and he said this, Before I was married, if I had visited the Grand Canyon alone, I would have looked at it and proclaimed, This is awesome. And then just after I was married, if I would have visited the Grand Canyon alone, I would have looked at it and proclaimed, This is awesome. I wish my wife were here to see it too. But then he said, after being married for many years, if I were to visit the Grand Canyon alone, I would look upon it and proclaim, this is awesome, but it would be better if my wife were here with me. You know, an Oreo cookie is pretty good by itself. Milk, pretty good by itself. But an Oreo cookie and milk, just great, right? They're just better, better together. Well, like an Oreo cookie and milk, shared experiences in marriage make life better. Society pushes upon us. Look, get your career settled, young man or, or young woman. Get your career settled. Get your house. Get your. I say to that, forget that. 
if, if, if I were to make a general recommendation to you, I would say marry young and make it work. Everything you have will be what you got together, right? Because if, if you go out and you buy your house and then you marry and then, well, I'll talk to the men. If your wife comes in, you're still going to think about that as your house. But if you get married young and you work from the apartment and save up together and you get your house or whatever the case may be, it's going to be yours. It's all going to be yours together. You can be a team and so parents here that have teens or people of marriable age and you just gasped when I said marry young and go for it. If you have questions about that, talk to me. But I think that's, I really do think that's a biblical thing. I mean, we're just pushing, society is pushing off marriage and pushing off marriage. And, well, I won't get off on that. Let me just say this. The physical bond of marriage is activated by leaving your parents forming new loyalties to your spouse and becoming one with them physically and emotionally. And then we see the spiritual bond of marriage, Matthew 19:6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's Jesus' conclusion on the ideal of marriage. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we find the spiritual bond of marriage. Now, you say, but it says flesh. Well, it says flesh, but then it says God's joined them together. Right? Notice it's God who joins them in marriage. Now, while they may perform the official ceremony of marriage, it's not the pastor, it's not the justice of the peace, nor the captain of the ship who joins the people. We, we, we participate in the ceremony and in the eyes of the law, we bring them together, but it is actually junk God that joins a man and woman together in marriage. Now, the ceremony is important, okay? Don't, don't say in your mind, well, we're married together in God's eyes. Let's go ahead and have sex. No, that's called fornication, and it's not what God would have you to do, right? There's a process. Get married, then have sex. It's God that joins a man together, man and woman together in marriage. It's hard to describe, but when a man and a woman are married, a spiritual bonding takes place. There's a bonding of spirit and soul. This is one reason why sexual sins are so heinous. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sex outside the bonds of heterosexual marriage is sin. Sexual immorality is sin against your own body that has been joined to the Lord. When you're married, it compounds the problem because your spouse is also being sinned against. You're not only sinning against the Lord, you're sinning against your spouse. Now, if God is the one that joins us in marriage, then who is the only one with the authority to separate our marriage? God. God joins us in marriage and God separates us from our marriage. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Jesus is very clear here in his answer to the Pharisees' question on divorce. <laughs> what God has joined together, let not man separate. So God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman 
united as one flesh for one lifetime. I'll give that to you again. God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman united as one flesh for one lifetime. That's the ideal. Marriage is the plan of God for a man to leave his parents and become loyal to his wife. This marriage is consummated physically by the couple and united spiritually by God. God's the one that separates the bond by death of one of the, either the husband or the wife. <coughs> so now, how does this apply to us here today? Well, if you're here this morning and your marriage is in trouble, it can be salvaged. It can be salvaged. You need to focus on following the Lord with your marriage. And God can work out those differences and those troubles. And if you need help with that, we can help you. As your pastors, we can help you with that. There are good Christian counselors that can help you with that. I mean, we're, we're, God's ideal for marriage, we've just discussed. But here's, here's the, 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 oh, what's, I can't, can't think of a good idiom. But, you know, here's, here's the ink and the water. We're both sinners. You're married to a sinful person. And guess what? Your spouse is married to a sinful person, right? And we still wrestle and struggle with sin. And so we're going to have conflicts, but we can get through them. If your marriage is in trouble, it can be salvaged. If you are divorced, then next time we're going to talk about the reality of divorce. Uh, Lord willing, in three weeks, we'll talk about that. And we'll look at proper reasons for a divorce. There are biblical reasons for a divorce. And we'll discuss those. <laughs> it may be here that you're here this morning and you're, you've been divorced and you wonder, can I remarry? Let me just give you a short answer. Yes, you can remarry. <coughs> Only in the Lord. Okay. If you're looking to get married or remarried, maybe you're a widower, then you need to know those ideals of marriage and strive for them with your new spouse. And then let me just say this morning, take a minute, if you're, someone's here this morning and you're not saved, the, the marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. When a person repents of their sins and follows the Lord Jesus Christ as their, as their king, God joins them to Jesus as one. And when he does that, my sins are paid for by his death on the cross. And his righteous life that he lived on my behalf becomes my righteousness. You see, when, when Kim and I got married, I had, I had about $8,000 of school debt. And she had $8,000 of school debt. So how much did we have, right? When we joined together, we both got our debts. But when we're joined to Christ through faith, my debts are paid by his righteous life. I would encourage you, turn from your sin. And trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your sins will be forgiven. And you'll be joined to Christ. You'll be given the Holy Spirit to help you lead a life of righteousness. If you have questions about that, please see me or Pastor Tad afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. But God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman united as one flesh for one lifetime. We'll look at the reality of divorce as we further address this question of the Pharisees, is it righteous to, divide, to divorce for any reason that you like? And we'll also look quickly at that follow-up question, why did Moses give a command that allowed for divorce? Uh, Genesis is such an important book, and it establishes the family. 
Jesus Christ himself referred all the way back to creation to answer questions about marriage and divorce and sexuality and our identity as male and female. All the answers are right there, folks. Trust God with your life. Let what he says be the rule in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ and his perfect life that he lived, his teachings that corrected our misunderstandings about you. And Father, his death for our sins and his resurrection to rule and reign over our lives. Thank you, Father. I pray for the families here at Faith Baptist Church. I pray that you will strengthen our marriages, Father. May we grow closer to you and to one another with our lives. And may we be fruitful in our marriages, Father, physically and spiritually, for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.